It's good to have you guys all here. We're starting up with uh, chapter 20 tonight of 1 Chronicles, and we'll move into chapter uh, 21 also. Actually, chapter 20 is, if I'm not mistaken, the shortest chapter in all of the historical books of the Bible, except for the end of Esther. There's a three-verse chapter at the end of Esther. This is a seven-verse chapter, so it's pretty quick. And the interesting thing about this chapter is, if you were here last time, you may remember that we had won the victory over the Ammonites, and we were at the city of Rabbah, and David had to attack or give it back. What are you going to do with it if you're there? And so it was time to attack, and the, remember the army told him, don't come anymore? So David got sent back home again for the, for the war, and so there's David on his rooftop, while the army's out at the siege of Rabbah, and David has nothing to do but look down at the house next door. And, however, in Chronicles, there's no mention of Bathsheba at all. So here in this book, we skip over all of that, and we go to uh, something entirely different. And I, I have a, 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 what I think is the reason for that um, tonight, but we'll uh, talk about that in a moment. So let's just get started with the actual text. Are we on the correct slide? Yeah. So chapter 20 begins, When springtime arrived, the time when kings go out to war, Joab led out the army, ravaged the land of the Ammonites, and besieged Rabbah. David remained in Jerusalem. There's the one hint that David was back home. Joab attacked Rabbah and pulled it down. And of course, who died in the siege of Rabbah? Uriah the Hittite, yeah, yeah. And that was because David asked Joab to do that. Joab, uh, Joab had to do a lot of David's dirty work, and he didn't like it very much, and we're going to get another one of those in this chapter where David asks him to do something, and he's not very happy about it. Um, but they'll, they'll do it. By the way, remember who Joab is to David? Nephew. Nephew. Yeah, he's his sister's son. So David took the gold crown of their king... From his head, it weighed 75 pounds. Okay, why do I have this picture up there? That's because that's a sixth grader. And that's what 75 pounds looks like. Okay? That's, or if you bring home two bags of salt for your water softener, that's just over 75 pounds. You ever lifted two of those on your shoulders? I, I could do when I carry him downstairs, you know, because I'm, you know, I have the strength of 10 men. Um, but imagine carrying both of them on your head. Not, not, not probably what you would want to do, right? So, um, so it weighed 75 pounds and had a precious stone in it. It was placed on, or maybe over, Hebrew word, Ald can move, can be either of those. So honor over David's head, he brought a large amount of plunder from the city. And I, I've got this picture in there too. Do you know what that, this famous, this, the painter's name is David, no relation. Um, anybody know what this is? That's Napoleon Bonaparte crowning himself and his wife. This is by the famous painter David, Jacques-Louis David. Napoleon actually commissioned him and made him paint this painting to his specifications. In the back, do you see the woman looking down from kind of the background? 
That's Napoleon's mother. She refused to go, and he painted her in anyway because uh, he thought mother should be there. And, and then he thought, she'll forgive me. The whole world will think it's a wonderful, and it is a wonderful likeness of her. But what Napoleon is doing now, having crowned himself, and I'm sorry that in the picture I cut out the Pope, but then again, so did Bonaparte. Um, he's holding the crown. He's about to set it over Josephine's head. Uh, so he doesn't set it on Josephine's head. He, when he crowned Josephine, he put it like down to her hair and didn't, because it also was, you know, pretty heavy. If you can imagine a crown that size made of lead, how heavy would it be? You know, pretty heavy. And what do you know about lead and gold? They're almost the same atomic weight, which is why the alchemists always wanted to change lead to make it gold. They figured if they could add or subtract the right thing from lead, it would just become gold, right? So uh, that, that's alchemy right there. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, uh, in fact, if you take a, 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 a bar of lead and a bar of gold and close your eyes, you can't tell the difference because they even scratch the same way. You know, that lead is very soft, so is gold. And, you know, by the way, if you do that, don't bite them. You don't want to ever bite lead, right? But you can bite gold, I suppose. All right. He brought out the people who were in the city. He, and we'll come back to this phrase, put them to work with saws, iron picks, and axes. David did the same to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the troops returned to Jerusalem. So after the battle, the impression we get is that David went out to Rabbah, a couple miles distant. It's, you know, here to Mankato, I suppose, away. Um, and he traveled out to Rabbah, got the crown and everything, and put people to work, looked around. What did... Uh, what did Lincoln do right after Jeff Davis abdicated and ran away? Lincoln went down to Richmond and sat down in Jeff Davis's chair in his office, um, which was, by the way, about a week before Lincoln was assassinated. You know, all, the, all that stuff happened at the, that same moment in time, just about. So I, I, just going back up, if you have a King James Version, uh, the second sentence begins not he put them to work with saws, but he cut them with saws. Yikes. Um, however, what do you do? A couple of us here kind of grew up still with cowboy shows on TV, right? What do you do if you want that particular cow and the herd's running? What do you call that when you get the cow out of the herd? You cut it out. Yeah, you cut it out of the herd. Um, that's, and I think that that's the, the idiom that David's using here. He cut out the best workers and put them to work with saws, iron picks, and axes. For one thing, uh, with an iron pick, you don't cut somebody, right? You impale them, but you don't uh, cut them out. Um, so uh, 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 David puts it, and what are they going to do? They're going to rebuild the town that he just wrecked. Um, but now they're not doing it for themselves, they're doing it for for David himself. And then David and all the troops returned uh, to Jerusalem. After that, war arose at Gezer with the Philistines. Look at how tall that guy is. He's too big for the picture. Sorry, I just thought I found a cool picture of a giant dude. Anyway, then uh, Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Sippai, one of the descendants of Repha the giant, and the Philistines were subdued. So, 
uh, there's this, uh, a, 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 we get three of these now. And incidentally, these are the last three gigantic Philistine guys in the Bible. So they're the last three. Uh, the parallel chapter is in 2 Samuel in the 20s, 23, 24, I think. Um, and the same three dudes are mentioned, these tall Philistines. Um, so the first one is named Sippai. Uh, uh, and he's killed by a man named Sibachai, who, by the way, is one of David's mighty men. Okay? So one of the 30 mighty men. Then there was another battle with the Philistines, and Elchanan, son of Jer, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. What does... All right, partners, what does Gittite mean? See a man who is good with a six-string? He's a guitar man? No, Gittite means he's from what city? Gath. Yeah. Uh, in fact, now I'm poking fun at Gittite and everything and guitar and so forth. That's because when David writes some of the Psalms, he writes some of them according to Gittith. That is, according to the music of Gath. David was there in Gath for quite a while. After he killed Goliath, he goes back to Gath to hide from King Saul. Um, I Kind of genius. Uh, where's the one place Saul will never look for me? Well, probably at Goliath's hometown. So that's where David goes. He wins the heart of the king of, the, of, of Gath and Oxib and, and uh, he's there for a long time. And I think he got to like their music. So sometimes he wants the harps either retuned or a special kind of instrument that plays like, you know, like they play at Gath. What would that mean? Maybe uh, 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 fretless uh, steel guitar played with a beer bottle. I don't know what it would mean or whatever it is, but uh, some kind of special music that David loved. And some of the psalms are tuned that way. Um, so not all the psalms are for the same kind of music. Some of them are for one kind of music and some for a different kind of music. But, oh, and I'll just mention that in Second Chronicles, um, I'm sorry, in um, Second Samuel, this guy is not called Lami, the brother of Goliath. He is simply called Goliath. So in Second Samuel, it looks like this guy, Elchanan, kills Goliath. And uh, so I think we have a textual problem there. There wouldn't be a lot of um, uh, surprise to see somebody who is like, oh, I get to write a passage about Goliath. And he forgets to mention that it was Goliath's brother who got killed and not Goliath. So I think that's what's going on there. But here in Chronicles, we learn the truth, uh, the, the, the whole truth. And uh, the text of Samuel sometimes has little quirks like that, that we're just going to, not worry about too much, but it seems like it was the, the brother of Goliath and not Goliath himself. Lami was his name. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The, the weaver's beam um, in the text is, uh, if you can imagine a loom, a, besides the sides that hold the loom together, the frame, a loom really has four important pieces of wood. One is in the back, it's the hinge, that you kind of tie everything in back to, all the different threads and so forth. One is the lower piece of the, of, the, of the thing that you kind of put together. One is the upper piece of that. And then one is the little, little piece of wood 
with a new thread on it that you shoot back and forth. What's that little one called? The shuttle, the weaver's shuttle. Well, the weaver's beam is the upper piece because the thing is on a hinge and a counterweight. So when you pull that one, the lower one comes up and the upper one comes down. It's long, it's smooth, you know, it's, it's tough, probably hardwood and not pine. So that's the weaver's beam. But yeah, uh, 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 but a serious piece of wood. And that's what this uh, giant's uh, uh, spear shaft was like. But Elchanan, one of David's men, uh, takes him out too. So that's two down, right? Okay. Then, look at the picture here carefully. You count them? Yeah, there's more there than there's supposed to be. Yeah. So uh, there was another battle, this time at Gath. There was a very tall man who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 digits in all. He also was a descendant from Repha the giant. So another one of these Rephaim. Um, he taunted Israel, but Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Shemaiah is the third brother um, of David's oldest brothers. So Shemaiah is the third one down. So his son, Jonathan, killed him. These were descended from the giant in Gath. They fell by the hand of David and the men who served him. Um, I, have I explained the giants of Philistia often enough, or do you want to have it one more time? Um, how, the, how the Philistines interacted with them, if you haven't heard this before. So uh, Dr. Bruggs, Dr. John Brug from, oh, DMLC back in the 80s, and then uh, uh, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary after that, just retired a little while ago. Um, his doctoral dissertation was on Philistine pottery and archaeology, and he, he's the one who changed the entire archaeological world's view of the Philistines based entirely on factual research of at, at, at in, 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 the, in the Gaza Strip and with their pottery um, and, and then texts like, like scripture. And um, I'm going to give it to you in a way that you'll be able to understand, although it's not exactly factual from what's red and what's black on their pottery, but I'll just give it this way. So let's keep in mind or pretend for a moment that the tall Philistines the older race living in Philistia, who are these giants, they're starting to die out. And their old pottery was uh, nice, but not very well decorated, and it just had maybe a red band on, on the neck of their pots. Understand? And then one year, oh, about the time of, the, of Joshua, uh, and the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, maybe a little bit before then, these uh, Greeks show up in ships on the coast. And they're all from places like Crete and maybe Rhodes and Kaz and some of those islands in, 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 uh, in, in the Greek archipelago. And the Philistines normally would challenge invaders, but the Greeks are in awe and uh, just seem delighted to be there and say, we come in peace. And the, the giant Philistines, and I'll say the typically sized Greeks, they're all like five, six, you know, all brown hair, brown eyes, you know, just typical Greeks. And uh, the, or maybe black hair, I don't know. And the, but the giant Philistines kind of have a little powwow, and the Greeks kind of have a little powwow. And instead of trying to wipe each other out, they say, huh, you know, we could, uh, 
there's room for everybody here, for once. And shortly after that, you begin to have accounts, like in Scripture, of a Philistine army with one giant. And at the same time in the archaeological record, you have pottery that looks kind of Greek from like here down with like three or four blue stripes and a black background and then one red stripe on top that's not Greek but Philistine. So they kind of merged their pottery styles. Get it? And they also merged their worlds and their worship. And the, the Greeks who had, a, who had a thing for weird Greek deities, right? They loved you know, like Poseidon and so forth. They, it seems like, kind of maybe taught the Philistines that their god, Dagon, was really kind of, sort of, Poseidon. And so Dagon becomes a fish god, a merman. And uh, they, they just get along. They're, the Greeks are, yeah, Poseidon, or yeah, Dagon, what are you going to talk? And then, then, then they all kind of get along, and that's, what, that's where the Philistines kind of come from. Um, I've kind of oversimplified that, but remember that the, that the overriding theme that I'm looking at in, that we're looking at in Chronicles is the question, are we still God's people? That's the, the end of the book. That's what we're going to come to. Are we still the people of God? And uh, here we have uh, these great adversaries, real tough guys, and some of them Ammonites and some of them others, and they're opposing God's people, and God helps David and his people to overthrow them. Well, at the time of the return from the exile, we have a verse like this from Nehemiah 2. Exiles have returned, but they've got some adversaries. And uh, so we get this verse. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the, oops, Tobiah the what? The Ammonite. Um, the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. So here what's happening is um, Nehemiah and Ezra and Haggai and others are trying to help the people to get together and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the walls of the temple. Um, and they're doing it. Nehemiah has the idea, you know, if we can't get the walls all the way up to 10 feet, can we just shoot for five you know, and he has a brilliant way of coaxing the people to build the wall by saying, uh, behind your house, you're responsible for the wall. And behind your house, you're responsible for that piece of wall. And Nehemiah goes around the houses on the outside of Jerusalem and, and the people who live inside from those, like in the, in the line of attack from there. And he assigns those people to build their bit of wall from here to here. And so naturally, what do you want the strongest piece of wall to be in Jerusalem? Yours, right? So it, it's stroke of genius for Nehemiah. And at the same time, Haggai, this is kind of the theme of the book of Haggai, is that the, 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 that prophet comes and, and remembers that uh, uh, one of Israel's neighbors, Lebanon, had sent down cedar wood once again as they did for the original temple under Solomon. And there were piles of it. Like, I mean, it was like Menards. They had lumber everywhere and beautiful stacks of, of this wood and marble and everything. And, the, and Haggai looks around and says, 
Where's all the cedar wood? Why isn't God's house built? And by the way, I love the paneling in your kitchen, Herb. You know, and ooh, whoops, and everybody's, uh, they all turn redder than cedar wood. And, and uh, so that, that it, uh, brings the people out to, to build what should have been built. Um, but this question, are we still the people of God? They were attacked, we were attacked. God won them the victory. God will win us the victory. Yeah, there were more of them, right? And they were, they were a vast nation. There are less of us. We're a puny nation. But are we still the people of God? And the author of Chronicles wants them to be able to answer with a quiet yes. Let's move on to chapter 21. The census. Not the first count in uh, Chronicles. Um, but we're not going to be burdened with all the numbers this time. So... Uh, but a scary first verse. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count Israel. In uh, uh, 2 Samuel 24, it's not Satan who does this. It's God became angry and incited David to do this. So who permits the devil to do anything? It's God. Um, so it doesn't make any difference if the devil does it kind of as the second banana here, but God is the one who's angry. But the question is, why was God angry? Um, well, we read verse 2, David said to Joab and the officers of the army, go count Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Tell me how many are there are. That's what David is incited to do, not what David did. So don't get into circular reasoning with God was angry because David counted the people. Because that's what David did because God was angry. Not how he got God angry. You get that? It's very easy to get into circular reasoning here. So why was God angry inciting David uh, to see? Oh, by the way, Beersheba to Dan. Normally in the Bible when they say from top to bottom in Israel, they say from Dan to Beersheba. So there's even a thing, like a little hint here that David's... David's uh, reasoning was upside down because instead of saying you know naturally would we say we would we wouldn't say from texas to minnesota if we were talking about the good part of america we would say from minnesota down to texas right so the, this is and david gets it backwards here so um so uh, uh i've got a couple points i'll make quickly because i know sarah's got to get going um that the people in general were sliding into sin. David's sins only paralleled this. Is that maybe what's going on? Or David's sin with Bathsheba? Except, what do we know about David's sin with Bathsheba in Chronicles? It's not even mentioned. So it seems like the chronicler, the author, maybe Ezra here, is, is take, took that out of the text so that we wouldn't misunderstand what the sin was. Um, besides, would God punish a whole nation for that one sin? In fact, didn't God punish David about that sin? Yeah. Nathan came in with his index finger in a really good story. You are the man. And, uh, and what happened to the baby conceived? Baby died. Um, so that, that, the nation's not going to get punished for that. But, but the people had earlier, in a story we're not going to get to, had rejected David in favor of his son Absalom, 
When Absalom rebelled, um, that's just over with, that, that account. And then after Absalom died, the people also rejected David right away in favor of Sheba, who is a, a, a kind of a, a he's, he's a, in, in the family of King Saul. And all kinds of people from Israel and Judah ran over to this other individual rejecting David. And so by rejecting the head of the covenant, which was David, they rejected the covenant itself and therefore God? Or could it be something else that we're just not told about? A commentator that I, that I respect, he's not of our fellowship, but I do respect him, says this. He says, his name is Del Ralph Davis, and he says, we must finally accept the text of scripture even when all of our questions don't have answers. And I like that. That reminds me of Luther saying, sometimes I have to doff my doctor's cap to the Holy Spirit because he knows more than I do. So even if I have questions about this and I can't answer them, that maybe I shouldn't say, oh, it's this or that, but allow it to stand. Um, not because we may take the Bible any which way, but because sometimes I don't have that answer. And I'll just allow scripture to say what it says, and I will learn from it. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.